Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your man Montel Jordan, and this is how we do it. And right now, you're listening to Legal Face Off on WGN Radio. That's right. You're locked onto the high energy legal podcast with lawyers Rich Lenkov and Tina Martini. And they're going to be trading jabs on the breaking news and the hottest issues, sports, entertainment, politics. Nothing is off limits. Keep listening because this is how we do it. Welcome into another edition of the Legal Faceoff podcast on WGN Radio. I'm Joe Brand, and as always, we're joined by Rich Lenkoff and Tina Martini. We begin today's show with a story of the New York Times talking about a family that's looking into answers about their son that was found dead his freshman year at Cornell University. We've got joined with us one of our two guests, David Bianchi, who represents those parents. He's also one of the country's most successful lawyers in fraternity hazing cases, along with Dr. Jonathan Zimmerman a history education professor at the University of Pennsylvania. Thank you both very much for joining the show today. Nice to be here. David, let's start with you. So as Joe mentioned, this was a very riveting New York Times article over the weekend that caught my attention. Uh, it's the story of Antonio Cialis. Is that, am I pronouncing the last name? Cialis. Cialis, uh, who's 18, an 18-year-old Cornell University freshman uh, who died in October 2019 after a night of, of drunken hazing. Uh, there's many legal aspects to the story that I want to cover in a short time. But I guess one of my main questions, and, and, and I'll say that I represent on the defense side a lot of colleges and universities. But I, I got to ask, from your perspective, um, universities and fraternities continue in the wake of what we see as an uptick in these kind of deaths. They continue to allege that either they're unaware of them or that they're putting in procedures to avoid this kind of tragedy, yet we keep seeing them. And even in light of these alleged protocols, we're seeing like at Cornell University, for example, they actually had a name called Dirty Rush for this rule that is broken. So when you're talking to juries, um, are you finding that they are believing the assertion from the defendants that these are things we don't know about? Is that even a plausible argument? No, 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 because most of the time, these are ongoing traditions. So these events occur at the same time every year. So the national, the national fraternities know about them. The universities know about them, but they just don't care. They don't do enough to stop it. And I've uh, been on these cases for literally decades. And it's now very clear to me, despite all the new laws and all of the efforts, that none of them work. Otherwise, we wouldn't see these ongoing fraternity hazing deaths. The rules are not working. So the discussion should be, what can we do differently that will finally stop it? And I've got some thoughts on that. Professor, as David mentioned, hazing, their laws and their rules, it's illegal. We continue to see deaths. What about the laws that are in place right now? What is it that is making them completely ineffective? Well, first of all, let me let me tell you, I'm not a lawyer. I don't even play one on the Internet. I'm, I'm a historian. And I would say what makes them ineffective is that hazing is part and parcel of fraternity culture. As long as we have fraternities and most of all, as long as the universities are connected to them, they're going to haze. Let me be clear. I think it should be illegal. And you can argue about what the penalty should be and all that. But we're not going to get rid of it being via laws. Um, uh, most people don't drive 55 miles an hour, um, uh, but we still have speeding laws. And I think most reasonable people think that we should. So we should have anti-hazing laws as well, but we shouldn't kid ourselves into thinking that they're going to get rid of hazing. 
But why is that? What What is it about? You said that you can't have fraternities without hazing. What is it no. about the psychology of fraternities, the atmosphere that makes hazing, and not just hazing, but right. hazing that results in this in, incredible, you know, amounts of intoxication and leading to deaths? What is it about fraternities that they can't exist without it? Well, you mentioned psychology, and I'm not a psychologist either. I'm a historian, and I do think the history is really critical here, because these institutions developed as a way to establish a kind of manhood. That is their history, and there is their raison d'etre. Um, if you go back to the 19th century, when colleges began, fraternities began, um, they were really about social class. Um, the very short story in the mid-19th century, schools that had been almost entirely for rich, rich white kids started to take some middle class and even working class white kids, all boys, all men. And the fraternities developed on the part of rich kids to try to say, hey, look, you know, we're the real whomever, you know, we're the real men on this campus. But then to the point of your question, what happens is we start admitting these new students called women. And then the point of fraternities change. Let me tell you, there's still class involved. You go to any college, they can, people can tell you what the rich kid fraternities are. But the institutions became not just about social class, but mostly about gender. They became a way for men to establish their maleness at a time when they felt it was under challenge for women. So this case comes out of Cornell. You should know that at Cornell in the early 20th century, one of the ways you got into fraternity was by agreeing not to talk to women for a year, not even in class, not even if you had a female professor, and there were very few of those. So what this tells you is that the very purpose of the institution was born in establishing a kind of masculinity and hazing, just like that example I gave you, is part and parcel of it. Please understand, I'm not trying to defend it, quite to the contrary, all right? But I think the history should make us very skeptical that laws are going to, are going to eliminate it. As long as you have fraternities, you will have hazing. Well, it's very interesting, actually, that in, in Cornell, where this tragedy took place, was actually the site of the first fatal hazing case from 1873. Uh, David, I, Tina's going to get to you in a minute with regards to your thoughts on how to avoid this. But I want to ask you about this specific case and, and, and bring our listeners uh, a little more detail, because this is really um, obviously a tragedy. You know, your client's son's body was found in a shallow pool of water the bottom of a ravine, his skull was fractured, his ribs were broken, he had enough alcohol in his system to indicate that he was drunk before he died. Yet no one's been charged. The case has been closed by the university police and the prosecutor. Uh, you've been very critical of Cornell's death investigation. What did they do wrong? And really, is a university police department equipped and unbiased to deal with a crime, an alleged crime of this magnitude when Obviously, the university doesn't want to have this associated with them. So is the police, is the university police the right avenue for this? Absolutely not. And that's what I've been all over since this happened. Keep in mind that although Antonio Cialis was a Cornell freshman, when they found his body, it was found in a gorge owned by the city of Ithaca. Now, where I come from, if you find a dead body on city property, the city police would investigate or the state attorney or the uh, state police would investigate. But you wouldn't have university police investigating a death that did not occur on their property. So I could never figure out why that happened. So what did they do wrong? What they did wrong was they led this investigation with university police officers 
And they were too quick to take, I don't know, for an answer. They interviewed a whole bunch of people, over 100. And everybody sang the same song. They all said, we know nothing. We didn't see him leave. We don't know where he went. We don't know how he got there. And they said, are you sure? And they said, yeah, we're sure. And that was it. They left the, they left the guy alone and they moved on to the next witness. So what did they do wrong? They should have insisted that the district attorney uh, convene a grand jury, which is what you do when you want to compel recalcitrant, reluctant witnesses who won't testify. That's how you get people to testify. Because with a grand jury, you subpoena them, they have to show up. They have to tell the truth because they're under oath. If they don't, they go to jail. And more often than not, you get people to say things that they otherwise would not say. So you had Cornell refusing to do more than just take, I don't know, for an answer. You had a state attorney or district attorney who uh, refused to convene a grand jury. And as a result, all these guys got away with saying, I know nothing. And some of them hired four separate law firms to defend them. They had a law firm just for the university disciplinary process, one for my case, one for the criminal investigation. They were lawyered up big time. And as a result, they were all shielded from having to tell what they know. And as a result, the parents don't know. And the parents may go the rest of their lives and not know how or why their son died. Professor, as you mentioned, um, that there's a long history of hazing in this country. The site where Mr. Cialis died is the site of the first hazing death at Cornell. That was in 1873 with Mortimer Leggett, a blindfolded freshman who died after falling into the gorge with two fraternity brothers who were supposed to be guiding him. You've said that you don't see how we can have fraternities without hazing. What's the solution here, short of completely doing away with the Greek system? Well, I think the solution is a separation of college and fraternity, like the separation of church and state. Let me be really clear about this. My next book is about free speech, and I'm a First Amendment zealot. Um, I believe in my bones, as deeply as I believe anything else, in the right to speech and also association. So these students, mostly men, they're citizens, they can die in wars and vote in elections, they have the right to associate in whatever way they want. If they want to rent a house, put up a bunch of Greek letters and call themselves fraternity, they have every right to do that. What I object to, given the history, is the institutions having anything to do with that. Um, uh, I don't think our institution should have any business with that, with that practice. Um, people are free to do it. Again, they're adults and citizens. Um, but we as institutions, given the history of fraternities and given what we know about the different kinds of masculinity that they've taught and embraced, we should separate ourselves from it. And don't let anybody tell you it's impossible because colleges have done it. Um, had fraternities, Colby had fraternities, Middlebury had fraternities. Admittedly, those are small places, right? But it is a lie to say that you can't separate yourself from them. You can. They did it. David, last word, we got about 60 seconds. What's the solution? How should this problem be fixed? In, in addition to what you're trying to do, which is, you know, gain a large jury verdict or settlement, uh, what can be done? Yeah, I've thought a lot about this. Uh, 25 years of working on these cases. I've written laws, gotten them passed. I've been immersed in this. I've now concluded that the, the way to stop this is the following. You have a university rule that says if there is any act of hazing, 
at your chapter house. If you're an officer of the fraternity, uh, you will be expelled from this university, even if you were in the library when it happened. What does that mean? That means that you're not going to be able to claim ignorance that you didn't know it was taking place in the unit in the chapter house that you were an officer of. And if it does take place and you're an officer, you will be expelled even if you were not there. And I'm convinced that that'll stop it. And in the Cialis case, and this is my last point, in the Cialis case, Cornell did not expel a single student for what happened, even though every officer participated in multiple meetings to plan this elaborate hazing event that ultimately led to Antonio's death. You can find more information on hazing at stfblaw.com. Also keep an eye out for Dr. Zimmerman's book, Free Speech and Why You Should Give a Damn. Thank you both very much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. Moving on with the Legal Faceoff podcast here on WGN Radio. And Tina, uh, kind of a scary number. Major U.S. cities are seeing a 150% increase in hate crimes targeting Asian Americans. So with that, we bring in our two guests of Chris Kwok, a former EEOC attorney and member of the White House Initiative Commission on Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. We've also got joined with us Chicago partner of Smith Edmondson, Gary Zhao. Great to be here. Yeah, thank you. So, gentlemen, as Joe mentioned, um, there has been a significant spike in the number of incidents of hate crimes directed towards Asian Americans, even though that's against the backdrop of the overall number of hate crimes in the U.S. declining over the past year. Chris, would you like to kick things off by explaining to us what is the cause of this spike? I think that, you know, America as a society has been stressed by COVID-19, to say the least. Our social uh, safety welfare net, uh, people's families, uh, people dying, uh, people losing jobs, uh, people losing money, um, you know, unable to work full time. And there has been a search for a scapegoat. They take out, I think, their frustration, their anger, all of which is real and which all Americans are really experiencing uh, to some extent on an Asian face that they perceive to be Chinese, uh, that they blame for bringing COVID here, for, for sort of you know, personifying uh, everything that, that they're suffering. So I think there's a backlash. Gary, what are your thoughts? 
Yeah, so uh, I, I think the rhetoric uh, from the top of our government uh, during the uh, pandemic certainly did not help. Uh, the use of terms Kung flu or China virus, especially China virus, was uh, very intentional, as many media outlets uh, have uh, uh, reported on that. And so that gets captured by the public, uh, like Chris said, who was very worried afraid of this uh, uh, new pandemic that, that no one has experienced before. And, and based on the harmful rhetoric that uh, descended from top of our government, uh, it certainly showed uh, a trend transformed into the rising anti-Asian racism as well as uh, hate crime. So I certainly believe the, the political leaders who are perpetuating these um, uh, false uh, terms, these harmful terms by Kung Flu and China virus were partly responsible for the rising AAPI-related racism and hate crimes. It's actually shocking. I want to pick up on that because it's actually shocking to me that over the last you know, four years, we've had the leader of our government, the, the leader of the free world, use those terms that you mentioned, right? The Kung Flu, the China virus. I mean, quite purposeful. There was no mistaking what he was saying in using those terms, right? And it's just shocking to me that in this day and age, we have this man standing up there um, repeatedly using those terms, riling up crowds, riling up rallies. You know, we have 73 people, 73 million people voted for him after all of that. And I guess what's shocking to me is that this is still going on and that no one has really said much about it, right? I mean, you're trying to give some voice to it, but it's amazing that if you replace the word China with Jewish or black or any other minority, you would think there'd be much more of an uproar. It's really disheartening that he could get away with it and act as if really nothing happened. He, it's, it's, it's the most blatant dog whistle I almost have ever heard. Well, it's not even a dog whistle. It's it's a full on blast bullhorn, right? You know, and you know, and it's just the, one of minor things that Trump has gotten away with. He has gotten away with things that my jaw has dropped, and it stopped dropping maybe halfway through his term because it just was like he was literally untouchable, right? And he was hearkening back to an element that has long existed in America, which was the geostrategic competition between Asia and America, whether it be Japan or China, depending on the era really affected how Asians in America were treated. And so with the latest wave, you know, he, he began a very aggressive foreign policy. And then we had COVID-19, you know, sort of first discovered in Wuhan. So unfortunately, all these things converge to really revive or have another uh, wave uh, of backlash, this time with people that appear to be Chinese, Asian Americans for the most part. Gary, there is frustration among many in the Asian community over what, what appears to be, and it seems to be a legitimate concern, about prosecutors refusing to, to file high, hate crime charges. What are your thoughts? Is there a hesitancy to file these charges? And if so, why is that the case? Yeah, so that's a really good question. Um, you know, I think these hate crimes, uh, the, the motive is going to be very hard to uh, prove unless at the time of the uh, criminal act was perpetrated, there was some sort of manifestation of uh, hate based on, you know, race, ethnicity uh, that is specifically directed at the AAPI victim. I, I think that's going to be hard for the uh, prosecutor to uh, uh, bring these charges. But again, I'm not the prosecuting uh, attorney. I'm not sitting in that position. So it's going to be 
uh, hard for me to make that judgment. But I want to say that uh, we, uh, the various Asian American Bar Association here in Chicago, work with both the local, federal, and state uh, prosecutors uh, about prosecuting uh, hate crimes, and they're all very enthusiastic in, in partnering with our bar associations, in educating the public, in putting out public statements to encourage the public to report such crimes. And we're still working with uh, Attorney General Kwame Wawu's office in tracking these uh, hate crimes. Every quarter, we meet with them and, and get reports with, uh, from Attorney General Wawu's office. And we put on um, presentations for the uh, Asian American public, community members, uh, about how to report hate crimes and what are the victim rights here in Illinois. And, and if I might add, there, there's two points that, that I've sort of, as we've been looking at this issue, yesterday, not yesterday, last week, um, there was an Asian American law student uh, from our association that was walking through a train station, bus station, and someone came up to him and poured a, a cup of milk on his head. And he obviously had selected him because he see he was Asian and there's a lot of people there. Didn't say anything. The guy went to the cops and said, some guy just poured like a, a, a cup of milk on my head. And the cops were like, you know, no shooting, no physical assault, right? I mean, there is an assault, but it's not like someone's bleeding. So they're like, all right, we'll look for them. They can't find them. What is it? We just got to let it go. And a lot of those incidents are that type of harassment, which is leading many, many Asian Americans to feel unsafe, going out in public, doing normal things. So there's that erosion of public safety that is really problematic. Those are crimes. You know, they're harassment misdemeanors. But added together, they point to these more serious things, right? And so I think the cops need to start getting more serious about what would normally go unarrested or undealt with. There needs to be some accountability. It doesn't have to be prison where people are not hurt, but there has to be some accountability. And on hate crimes, I believe that Americans do need to learn a little bit more about Asian Americans and race. You know, um, I think there, you know, there, there's thoughts like, hey, Asians are basically like white people. You know, they're, you know, if they experience crimes, it's basically because, you know, uh, not because they're Asian. And so I think there needs to be education, particularly for district attorneys, to learn how Asian Americans experience race. It's slightly different from African Americans and Latinos. There's many similarities. There's some differences. And so I think that that's part of the work that Gary and I are doing in both in our local bars and through our national bar. All right, so last minute uh, on the show, Gary and, and Chris, I'd like you to both address this question. So we've seen um, very vocal, very loud uh, protests by some other groups who have felt aggrieved over the last you know, 18 months, 12 months. Uh, we saw the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, they had some offshoots of that, you know, spread havoc around the country here in Chicago. We saw some rioting over the summer. Uh, many are fearful that a not guilty verdict in the George Floyd criminal prosecution will lead to riots. We also saw, of course, the insurrectionists take over the Capitol. Uh, they had their own beef with, um, you know, trying to uh, overtake uh, the election. So my question to you is, do you feel like as, as though the Asian American community needs to be louder, needs to be more vocal, needs to take up some of the tactics that some of these other groups are um, partaking in, even though some of those tactics we'd all agree are pretty reprehensible to, to many of us. So what are your thoughts on whether your voice needs to take be louder or maybe take a different approach. Chris, we'll start with you and we'll end with Gary. Yeah, that's a, that's, that's a hard question. But I, I think that if you support BLM and you oppose anti-Asian violence, it's part of the same fight. There are manifestations of fighting against structural racism. And I think that we can sort of get into the weeds about sort of what tactics are necessary. But if people feel pressed to the edge 
They have no other ways. The government is not listening to them. You know, people like, you know, when I post about anti-Asian violence, I have Asian American friends that are like, get a gun. And I'm like, I, I don't want to get there yet. You know, I mean, but but I can certainly understand the frustration that has been building uh, in the Asian American community. And it has been long building many legitimate concerns within the African American community. So I feel like, you know, sometimes revolutionary change is hard and we need to push towards it. So. Gary, last word. Yeah, I agree. I think that um, uh, we need to be more vocal, but we also need to be more uh, strategic about how to uh, approach it. And uh, certainly I have nothing against uh, peaceful protest. And as we see on the news uh, more recently that there are uh, Asian community groups and black community groups out in the uh, West Coast, especially in the Oakland area, gotten together and have peaceful protests or you know marches. Uh, advocating against AAPI violence and AAPI hate crimes. And so I think certainly uh, the, the population of Asian Americans is small. I'm not talking about East Coast and West Coast, but here in Central United States, it's, it's small in terms of uh, minority communities, uh, persons of color were a smaller in population. So I think the right approach is probably going to be um, working together with other minority groups, other diverse groups that are experiencing similar uh, hate crimes and, and racism, other forms of uh, discrimination. So that's all I have to say on the top. More information on this can be found by searching the piece, A Rising Tide of Hate and Violence Against Asian Americans in New York City During COVID-19, Impact, Causes, and Solutions. Chris, Gary, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. Great. Thank you. We all know the legal world is complex and high-pressured. There's no room for error. That's why judges and attorneys across Chicagoland have trusted the expert court reporters at McCorkle Litigation Services since 1948. McCorkle Litigation Services has accurately recorded every word from thousands of legal proceedings. McCorkle Litigation Services provides the legal community with peace of mind, transcribing testimony and depositions that can be used reliably by jurors, judges, and attorneys. For all your legal support needs, contact McCorkle Litigation Services online at McCorkleLitigation.com. Welcome back to the Legal Face-Off podcast here on WGN Radio. And as we move along, one of our main hosts, Tina Martini and David Sussler, were just recently featured in the Chicago Lawyer magazine of this month's Inside Out article. And along with Tina Martini and Rich Lenkoff, we have David Sussler with us. Take it away. So welcome, David. Welcome, Welcome back, Thank you. welcome back to your own show. So uh, this is your regular Chicago lawyer column inside out. You've been doing this for what, 10 years? It seems like it's uh, actually 11. going on 11 years. Isn't it, David? Won't it be 11 in April? 11 in April. Congratulations. Um, longer than most teams. And that's apropos for our topic, because this inside out talks about the importance of high performing teams. Uh, we all know how important teamwork is, especially it feels like during the pandemic. So Tina, why don't you explain to us the, uh, the, the gist of the article and why high-performing teams are so important, especially in the legal field. So high-performing teams, and I'll, I'll take this question from the private practice perspective, given how competitive the legal field has become, especially over the last few years, and as you mentioned in the wake of COVID, it's really important to have a group of people that are collaborative, are able to work well together, not only with substantive expertise, but also with other key differentiators, such as great client service, ability to leverage off of each other's strengths, 
Um, you know, having a great team means that not everybody is good at the same thing. You need to have people who complement one another. And the whole end result is to make sure that the client experience is a great one because great client experiences are what makes clients come back. And you need to have more than just substantive expertise. You need people who are able to work together, who know what their role is within the team and who can, can, who can deliver consistent results. David, you were on the inside uh, as general counsel, as Joe mentioned, uh, you also frequently work with younger attorneys, younger professionals coming up in the, uh, in the business world, in the legal world. And I know you take a lot of time doing so. So my question to you is, do you find that the sense of teamwork and team building uh, is something that you are seeing in the younger generation or is it more something that you have to teach uh, as someone who's been doing this for a while? Um, I think uh, in, in the upcoming generation of Washington young lawyers that working in teams is, is part and parcel of who they are. It comes natural to them. Um, it's actually sometimes it, 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 when I'm interviewing law students, especially for the, the ACC Chicago Diversity Summer Internship Program, it, it's a real culture shift from when I was coming up um, when we kind of thought we had to do it all on our own. They are hungry to be part of a team. So they kind of get it. That's good to know. Tina, uh, you, your article touches on the difficulty of being both a leader and a teammate. And I know that as someone who's in management at my firm, uh, that's always a challenge. Frankly, you know, you want to be uh, a peer with your employees and you want to be a member of a team. But, you know, the old adage is you can't be friends with people that you manage. So how do you recommend to our listeners and our viewers that they toe the line between being a good teammate and also being a good leader? That's a great question. My advice is just to sort of be fluid and be willing to sort of straddle knowing that it ebbs and flows. Um, sometimes there are, is, sometimes you really need to emerge as the leader in the group, but I think it's critically important that as you get the group going on a project and have the team leader hat, that you are willing to move pretty quickly into the team member role, meaning that you don't ask anybody to do anything on the team that you wouldn't be willing to do yourself. And I think that that is probably one of the most important things that I've learned over the years, being both a team member as well as a leader, that folks need to be confident that what you're asking them to do is possible. Preferably, they've seen you do the different tasks that you ask the team members to do. And sometimes, depending on how tough a project is or how complex they really need to be able to look at you more as a leader than as a team member to help them navigate through the intricacies and nuances of what a project may bring. David, your argument on the concept of building a team involves some face-to-face -face interaction, some FaceTime. You mentioned stopping by and chatting when you're in the office. Obviously, over the last 12, 13 months, most of us have not had the opportunity to do that. Most of us have been working at home. So how have you adapted your team building routine uh, during the COVID era? Uh, a lot more video calls. Um, otherwise, it, otherwise, it's the same, right? Um, I, I, just, I think it's really important to get to know your colleagues and your teammates as human beings. Uh, touch on what you, you said in your question, Tina. I don't think it requires necessarily being friends, 
but in, in the social sense, but you have to get along. Uh, and I think teammates are more willing to perform for you as the leader if you if, if they feel you're invested in them as people as well, and not and not just workers. So yeah, it takes more intentionality in the time of COVID, but get on the phone with people and, and get on video Zoom. And I always take try to take a few minutes, either at the beginning or the end of a business call, to just talk about it. It doesn't have to be minutes, it could be seconds. How you doing? You know, uh, how did that storm affect you last night? Or, you know, your favorite team won. Your team just got in the NCAA. Are you excited about that? Little personal touches like that go a long way. I think especially in these times where most of us are physically remote. All right, last question. You know how I have to end every inside out interview, right, David? Right, Tina? We're all huge Springsteen fans. Sussler is an OG Springsteen fan. So my question as it relates to team building is who was the best teammate for our idol, Bruce Springsteen? Now, there's a caveat, Tina and David. You cannot name a member of the E Street Band. So tell me who Bruce Springsteen collaborated with that made the best teammates in music history. We'll start with David Sussler, then we'll go to Tina. Uh, I think John Landau has been his best uh, teammate of all. He's been really good. Very interesting. Tina? Courtney Cox. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Wait. If it wasn't for Dancing in the Dark, that video and how he pulled her out of the audience like 35 plus years ago. I mean, that to me, I mean, I barely knew who she was at the time that video came out. But man, anybody who didn't know who she was and there were a lot of people who did at the time that came out because she was an emerging actress. But a lot of people knew who she was after that video. Well, that's, it's a great answer. I'm going to go with a uh, another partner of his, a teammate that he couldn't really be here without, and that's uh, his ass. You know, without without Springsteen behind, without his buttocks on the cover of you know the greatest cover of all time, Born in the USA, he surely wouldn't be here. So I'm saying his best teammate, Joe Brand, is his rump, his posterior. There you go. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll just leave all that behind us then. Don't forget to subscribe at ChicagoLawyerMagazine.com. You can also follow Tina and David on Twitter. David, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Take care. Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Bryce Downey and Lenkoff. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like United Airlines, McDonald's, Macy's, Dollar Tree, and the Chicago Bears for his outstanding litigation results. In 2015, Target named him their top outside litigation attorney in the country. Rich has received a number of industry accolades, including Illinois Super Lawyer from 2015 through 2019 and Leading Lawyer from 2012 through 2020 designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, including serving on organizations like the Advisory Board of Legal Prep Charter Academy and the Board of Visitors for the Northern Illinois University College of Law. In addition to his full-time practice, Rich is a prolific producer with credits including Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel, 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and the coach, Mike Ditka. Renegades, a live show in Las Vegas starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon. In addition to co-hosting Legal Face-Off since 2013, Rich is the legal analyst 
for The John Williams Show on WGN Radio. Bryce Downey and Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, business transactions, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Bryce Downey and Lenkoff, please visit BDLfirm.com. That's BDLfirm.com. On to the final segment of the Legal Faceoff podcast with our legal grab bag and a special treat today as Martin Montana is going to play both roles as both the legal expert and also the wild card in today's segment. Martin Montana, an actor and comedian, he's the house of Renegade, rather the host of Renegades in Las Vegas. You can find his information at martinmontana.com. Also follow him on Twitter at Montana Comedy. Uh, saw your Shock Top ads. Do, do you know the, the comedian? Is it TJ Miller? I do. Yeah, I do know TJ. We had uh, we had fun, fun filming the uh, the Super Bowl stuff. He got a he got a trailer that was uh, fully stocked with food, beverages, some sort of steaming device. Um, I had the same trailer completely empty. <laughs> so <laughs> I hung out in his. But yeah, he's a good guy. We had fun. And, uh, and I have no problem pretending to be a lawyer. So uh let's proceed is that right did i say that right i've been doing it for a while but yeah the, let's let's give a little more plug to renegades let's just show everyone what oh martin, yeah yeah what martin and i look like what two years ago three years ago that's martin in the in the middle and that's me I'm yeah the, we'll pop them all that's me and my dad came to see the show yeah so joe and tina renegades is a uh, a live show in vegas that i produce with my partner scott preston and we came upon highly recommended Young Las Vegas, Los Angeles comedian. And then that guy wasn't available. So we called Martin Montana. You see? That's right. That's right. That's right. So then uh, we, we, we hired Martin Montana as our host. And Las Vegas history was born there, Martin. We, we had a, a great run on the show. Uh, Terrell Owens, the great Jose Canseco, and legendary Jim McMahon, in addition to guest star Jimmy King. Yep. Great show. Ran at Caesars Palace, Cleopatra's Barge. And we'll be coming back. In 2021, with some all new stars. So stay tuned for that, starring Mark to Montana. Let's go, Joe. We got a full slate here today. Let's do it. All right, Rich. Well, we begin with Minneapolis agreeing to settle with the George Floyd lawsuit with his family paying out $27 million. So a couple couple points here, Tina and, and, and Martin. So it's it's a record settlement for this type of case. Number one. Number two, the attorneys involved, one of them has been on our show before, Ben Crump who is one of the foremost civil rights attorneys in the country. He got another record jury verdict a couple of months ago. It was actually the first Zoom jury trial ever. I think he got about $130 million in Florida. And then the other attorney is Antonio Romanucci, who's a very prominent personal injury attorney here in Chicago, who's been a frequent guest on our podcast. He's the other attorney. So they got a lot of money um, for the family of George Floyd. And the timing is very interesting because it came down, the announcement was last uh, Friday, and it was in the middle of jury selection in the criminal case, right? So George Floyd um, was allegedly killed, allegedly murdered by Derek Chauvin, a police officer in Minneapolis. He's being charged with second-degree murder, um, third-degree murder, uh, manslaughter as well. And the timing has been criticized by many on both sides of the case. On the defense side, Tina, the criticism is, well, you're tainting the jury pool because the average juror would look at the $27 million settlement. And even though it's a civil settlement, they would think, well, this is a record settlement. Uh, he must have done something wrong if they're willing to pay that much. 
on the on the on the prosecution side, they have felt that the timing was poor because the argument there as a juror is, well, he's already been compensated. Right. George Floyd's family has already been compensated civilly. So uh, there's not as much pressure to go after him criminally. What are your thoughts on those two potential juror approaches and, and the timing of the settlement? Well, you know, the settlement is sort of what it is. And I do think that it's important to make sure that we have an unbiased jury because that's an integral part of our judicial system. Um, I, 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 I can see how on both sides that there are issues with this. I mean, ultimately, we have to remember also that there's a huge difference between a civil case and a criminal case. So what happens from a civil standpoint is very different and is separate and apart from what happens in the criminal trial. So, um, and and I I think that there was a desire to get this case from a civil perspective out and done as as quickly as possible. Yeah. Martin, have you ever heard of a jury, criminal or civil? Uh, Criminal when I lived in New York City. But um, I was selected and we kept showing up every day and then they settled before trial. I know you're one of those guys who has every possible excuse for not. And I, no, my God, you have no idea. I, I was I was the one like in the larger room when they're like, does anybody have a conflict? And I was like, yeah, yeah, yep, 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 yep. <laughs> I was like, I used to work in, you know, finance insurance. I might not be good for this kind of case and the guy's like you can put your hand down yeah you're still i'm I'm playing the chuckle out in rochester during the (laughs) trip i can't make it but on a serious note you know as a potential juror let's say you were in the box and being you know a potential juror is it possible to tina's point to not know about the case that's not really the test right the test is whether your knowledge of the case if you could put that aside and base your decision on the evidence but in this case where this video has been viewed by almost everyone on the planet. There's not a single person who hasn't seen the video and probably formed a judgment as to the guilt or innocence of Derek Chauvin. Do you think it's possible to find an impartial jury? I don't think so. I mean, it takes a lot of patience and sort of separation in your own head to be like, okay, I already know all these outside things, including this settlement as a good example. Now I'm going to have to erase it, suspend it, and only take what's presented in the court and, you know, base my opinions on that. I think for most people, that's pretty much impossible. I mean, it, you, I, and I don't know in jury selection how you're going to filter that out just based on answers and interviews to really understand like, hey, can you really do this? Can you weigh both sides, come in clean slate? I, I just, I think it's almost impossible to do that. Yeah, Joe, the defense actually, you know, this seems to everyone like an open and shut case, right? Uh, we saw Chauvin with his knee on Floyd's neck for a long period of time. We all saw this poor, poor person die, you know, on video. However, Joe, the defense has actually put forth already some pretty interesting defenses that I think you have to take seriously if you are on the jury. Um, specifically, what they've said so far is that George Floyd started to say, I can't breathe before he was even on the ground. Number one. Number two. They said that he was under the influence of a variety of drugs, including high uh, uh, amounts of fentanyl. Um, And number three, very, very significantly, they said that he was merely that Chauvin was merely following department protocol. And in fact, there's a it's written in allegedly in the police department manual that this was a legal method 
of restraining people, and it's been used many times before. So do you think any of those defenses will sway a jury understanding that this is going to be a jury unless the venue gets moved and there's still a motion to move it, but this is a jury that's been you know, traumatized, obviously, by this video and, and, and everything that came after it. Yeah, well, not only that, I mean, how many of us knew so much about this case already? And now you've got this jury coming in that's maybe already had their minds made up. But I, I think it's only fair that in any type of case, you have to hear absolutely everything. But enough to sway. I, I mean, that just comes down to which way the evidence is presented, how convincing is it enough? I mean, I think still at the end of the day, you know, whether it's protocol or not, does the person, does the human being need to die? And I, I think nine times, if not 10 times out of 10, the answer should be no. The person doesn't have to die in order for the situation to be dissolved. Absolutely. So obviously we saw what happened after the George Floyd death and uh, another case of, of rioting and and uh, just some kind of unrest is uh, what happened at the Capitol in January. And now two men who are at the riots were arrested for using bear spray on Brian Sicknick. He's the officer that tragically died during those riots, Rich. Yeah, I mean, we all thought the word initially with uh, Officer Sicknick was that he was hit in the head with a fire extinguisher, and that's how he died. Well, it turns out that now the FBI has arrested these two men, as you mentioned, and uh, the allegation is that they used bear spray uh, on him. And he, they haven't been charged yet with murder. They've been charged with assault because it's not quite clear yet whether the officer died from the spray. But if you read the label, if you read some of the literature on bear spray, that is a potential side effect, right? I mean, you're spraying. doesn't take a genius to know that you're spraying something that would stop a bear, right, into the face of a human that's going to cause some significant damage. So um, – uh, I'm pleased, obviously, as most people are, that they have moved this quickly. Uh, again, this was the result of some pretty strong investigation. Um, and in those short parts of video, there's video showing them, and you can hear them say, let's grab the spray. And then you see Officer Sicknick and some other officers afterwards struggling. So uh, good development, more to come. And, uh, Tina, you know, um, hopefully the, the feds will continue to go after and prosecute those involved. Yeah, and I would think just given where we are these days with respect to our investigation skills and toxicology and things like that, that it would be, I would imagine it's pretty easy to figure out whether this was a determinative cause of death um, or at least for purposes of causing respiratory distress, creating an, uh, you know, an unmanageable amount of toxins in in their blood, what, whatever the case may be, I would think that this is probably a pretty easy or relatively easy case to get to the bottom of. I mean, this stuff is really strong. It's toxic and it's known to be that. And so um, I, I think that, and I agree with you, Rich, I hope that this continues to move forward at, you know, very quickly so that justice is going to be found here and so that justice prevails. Darius, Hi, I feel like I'm late to the party. Uh, that's okay. That's okay. We, we really appreciate you being here. You're executive director of the Chicago State Foundation. We're talking, of course, about the uh, arrest of two individuals who have been charged with assault in the death of Officer Sicknick in the Capitol. What are your thoughts on, uh, on this development? Um, breathtaking. Um, at, at, the, at a bare minimum, they should spend some jail time. Um, 
look, we had these conversations about we're talking about a, a, an, an officer of the law. No matter what your politics are, you know, I just a dear friend who's like family just became a police officer. She's going to be fantastic. So I am not anti-police. Um, but but that act, whether they can find causality to the murder, it was a major assault on a police officer. Um, so at the very least, there must be they must still um, I think jail time for this. It was a coordinated. I think Tina may have alluded to a coordinated attack. Um, as, as someone who's not a legal person outside of the three episodes of LA law, I just watched this weekend to get ready. That's as much preparation as you need. That's it was good. And Blair Underwood is everything I need in life. So <laughs> it just, but let me get focused. But yeah, th- look, I think we're past the areas of grays. Um, it's on video. It's clear. I expect whether it is a murder charge, a manslaughter charge, whatever it is, but there must be some major cost to be paid for this. Um, that was an attack on human life, but it was attack no less on a man um, who was paid to protect us and, and, and paid to protect the capital. And that's what happened to him. And less than 24 hours later, he was dead. So toxicology, not toxicology, notwithstanding, we were clear on what we saw. I saw it on video. They've got good shots of it. This isn't a break for me. So it becomes what is the punishment going to be, not if a crime was committed. Martin, uh, one of the guys was wearing a sandwich U shirt. That turns out to be a business he owns in uh, West Virginia by the university. And, uh, you know, Twitter has blown up. I actually tried to look it up this morning, tried to look up reviews, because apparently this guy is going after everyone. Before this all happened, he was one of these Yelp owners who would just, you know, attack the hell out of you if you gave him a bad review. I actually found some of the reviews, and they're unbelievable. I mean, literally, like, just the guy is nuts. Um, but you know, the sandwich you was probably, uh, probably not selling too many sandwiches anymore. Yeah. So he wore, so he wore, you know, he figured he'd do a little promo <laughs> while he was assaulting yeah, well, the cap. I mean, why not? A little bear spray, a little sandwich selling, you know, multitask it. Why not? When he was, when he was packing up uh, his truck in West Virginia, you know, he's like, ah, wait, forgot my coat. And he had to you make know, sure. It, he- it's an age old question. What do you wear to an insurrection? Right. I mean, there's no, <laughs> yeah. no red carpet uh, protocol for uh, taking over the government. So yeah. I will, I'll add one thing on this, uh, on this topic as, so as an outsider, I think this is what can be, really frustrating right so if i'm the family member of the officer and to me i would say how can it be anything but murder right i mean it's cause and effect i mean if if the spray didn't happen the person doesn't die so let's say they don't charge with murder and it stays as an assault and the penalty is whatever that's going to be i mean i know uh, that to me that would that would drive me crazy i'd be like how can you just say it was just an assault. They do a year or two, whatever it is, mm-hmm. probation, and they're out, and and this person's dead. I mean that that's where I think as an outsider, the legal stuff gets tricky because it's like, well, why else did it happen? I mean, it's, it's in front of you. It'll come down to experts, right? I mean, you'll have medical experts on both sides. Yeah. My real question, Joe, is this is unanswerable. Why isn't Trump charged as an accomplice to assault right now? Right? I mean, that he should be charged criminally as a, as a. Uh, as a perpetrator in this crime, in my opinion. But let's move on to our next story. Yeah, okay, Tina. Uh, Georgetown Law Center has fired one of their professors for some racial remarks that they made when they thought the Zoom class was no longer being recorded, but it still was. 
Yeah. So this story is so outrageous to me. Um, I picked this up a couple days ago. This happened within the past week. There were two adjunct professors, Sandra Sellers and David Batson at Georgetown Law School, who were teaching a negotiations class by Zoom. And it was recorded for purposes of students being able to watch it um, whenever was convenient for them. And apparently one of the students caught wind that the video kept going after the, um, the video recording kept going after the class was over. And um, Sellers was quoted as having said, and she actually did say this in the video, quote, I hate to say this, I end up having this angst every semester that a lot of my lower ones are blacks. Happens almost every semester. And it's like, oh, come on. You get some really good ones, but there are usually some that are just plain at the bottom. It drives me crazy. I mean, in no universe is this appropriate. I mean, it was just incredibly outrageous. And so the student brought this to the attention of the school. The dean came out and immediately terminated Sellers, who was the person who made this statement. Batson, who was co-teaching the class with her, had been put on suspension and ended up last Friday resigning as well. Black faculty at the law school also understandably released a statement on the issue stating that this, this comment was just so outrageous and does not take into account that there are people of every color, including white folks who are at the bottom of the classes too, and they were under, understandably outraged. I mean, it, it's really hard to believe that this still happens, Rich, but it, it does. And I'm glad that Georgetown took swift action in this instance. Well, I agree a little bit, disagree a little bit. I, I obviously want to get Darius's perspective um, as uh, someone who's been in the space for years, you know, uh, executive vice president, chief operating officer for Chicago Urban League, uh, involved in Chicago International Charter School. Um, you know, all over the educational space for many, many years. But I don't know. I don't know if, if it's as obvious, I, I want to say, it, as it might seem, right? And I think it speaks to sort of a bigger question in our society and, and something we struggle with all the time. How do you talk about race without resulting, without it resulting in termination, without it resulting in outrage, without it resulting in, you know, what we're seeing here? I'm not saying what she said was right. I'm not saying that what she said wasn't offensive, but if you look at the video, I'm not sure everyone looked at the video. If you looked at the video, which I did, you know, she's troubled by it. She's not celebrating it. She's speaking. She says the words, I have angst about it. You know, it seems to me like she is troubled by the fact that in her perception, some of the people in the lower end of the class that she's grading are African-American. You know, I didn't take her uh, opinion of that as something that's necessarily racist. Now, is it the wrong thing to do to say that all of them are, you know, African-American? Of course, that's not true. And I don't, maybe it is true, I don't know. But she certainly could have, you know, phrased that differently, used different, you know, different language. But I guess, Darius, um, you know, to me, this is not as blatant as some of the institutional racism you see being communicated. So I'm just, I'm not sure yet. Yeah, actually, I think it's worse. You think it's I actually think it's worse. Tell us why. Yeah, I, because what what she, I, I have a younger sister. I was the first in my family to go to U of M. My sister was the second. She called me in tears her first week because the TA said to her, don't waste your time 
coming, and this is a true story, don't waste your time coming to my office hours. I don't think this is the right degree for you. Mm -hmm. So when that professor sat there and said, every time I see a black student, I get angst, her unconscious, or in this case, fairly explicit bias takes over. So she can, and we do this all the time. No, I'm not racist, but, well, that's why we must challenge our own bias. I must challenge my bias as a black gay man when I walk down the street and I see a black face or I see any other person. We must get comfortable with being uncomfortable. So I think what she did was worse because she does not see the problem. And, and others don't see it because she used the, it just breaks my heart. Okay, you're a professor. Guess what your obligation is to your students? To find out what those underlying challenges are and address those versus saying I have angst. That's why I think what she did was more dangerous because I'd much rather somebody be direct and blatant with their racism with me. It is easier for me to manage. And since these dual pandemics, I don't like subtlety. I'm not good with it. She's subtle, but not so much. Yeah, so I find her more dangerous. Very interesting take. What about the other professor who was, you know, listening to the Zoom conversation? He is now resigned and, uh, you know, he says I should have acted differently in reaction to her statement. What, what, what's your perspective on him? I have a different response to him. I don't know him. I, there is not enough on the tape to know. Um, I think he is guilt by association and that I don't know that that's fair or not. Um, if we were all doing the work that we have to do, um, I would have hoped that his response would have been, hey, as professors, we've got to think about what these students bring in. Um, they're not bringing in tutors and supports and all of those things. In many cases, some are working extra jobs. So what do we do about that? Or to say to her, hey, I like you, but is your bias when you see a black person infecting their grade? Because a lot of this, let's be real clear, this isn't math. This is subjective. Mm -hmm. So so that is where, where she becomes dangerous. So I don't know that he got what he deserved, um, for, for lack of a better term. But I wish that the next time, I hope that the next time he's in that situation, that he stands his ground and says, this is how I feel about this. I think we all have an obligation to each other to do that. But I don't think he did anything that's actionable, in my opinion. Yeah, I would, I would add one, uh, one thing to that, too, is to your point, Rich, about, um, you know, well, so how do you talk about race? How do you bring up a topic uh, without creating emotional response and, and all these types of things? Well, I think this would be a good example of if the, if it's been skewed the other way so long, let it skew a little bit in the right direction, even just for a half a beat or second. So be it, you know And I mean? Unfortunately, if the guy associated didn't didn't really do anything, quote unquote, wrong, but he didn't step up and now he's he's gone. Well, that just might be the tiny, tiny collateral damage versus years and years of you know either blatant racism or uh i'm not racist but i'm certainly not against racism type of mm. thoughts you know um so i just think i think that's okay for me i say hey you know let some of those chips fall versus all of the other side that you know uh typically is on the losing end of all of it forever so Moving on with the next topic, the artist Her, H-E-R, is being sued for copyright infringement over her hit song, Focus, Tina. 
Yeah, so that about says it all, Joe, in terms of the story. <laughs> but no, so um, as listeners of Legal Faceoff know, we can't have a grab bag without having some story about some type of intellectual property infringement in, in any given week. And this week, we're talking about her, and we're going to be talking about Taylor Swift shortly. But in this case, so her has this great song focus. Um, she's being sued by Andre Sims for copyright infringement. DJ Camper, who produced Focus, um, is a linchpin to this case, I have a feeling. Um, <laughs> DJ Camper went on social media and allegedly admitted to taking the music for her song Focus and copying it. Um, so usually when we're talking about copyright infringement, you have to demonstrate copying. And when you can't demonstrate copying, you need to demonstrate access and substantial similarity. Here, we have somebody who was an integral part of creating the song saying that he took the other song and not only was inspired by it, but actually incorporated into the song. I don't know if our guests had a chance to do the quote side by side. Um, I did, and I think they're pretty darn close. Rich, what do you think? I listened to it, I listened to it. It's like every story we cover. It's all derivative. All music is derivative at some no, point. No, it's not. Most great artists you will tell you. You can't say that to an IP lawyer like me and oh think you're going to get away with it. Montana, you're you're an artist. You <laughs> mean to tell me that you haven't you know, cribbed something off the grades in the past or has something cribbed oh, wow. off you? I mean, come on. Well, I mean, yeah. In comedy, there's joke stealing all the time. It happens yeah. all the time. I, so I listened to the two tracks. But and I will say, like it to me, it sounds close. But if you showed me a lot of music, it would sound close. And yeah. so I don't know. Does that justify three million dollars? Mm. If you're the artist, that's you not just much at all compared to what some of these cases are. All right, what's your take? Did you listen? To um, I listen. I love her, but after listening, her's in trouble. <laughs> um, and I let me be really clear. I I know the words to focus. I sing it, but I listen to the side by side. I like ooh. Her in danger. And what her needs to do, this is just my opinion, her needs to Nicki Minaj her way through this right. and give Tracy Chapman her money. Uh. Um, that's what she needs to do. The similarities are breathtaking. But to Tina's point, and again, Tina, you make me feel like I'm almost sort of a lawyer because I'm with you on this. Um, once I go out and say I stole it, I mean, I'm sorry, liberated it. Like, I, I don't know what's left. He literally went on record yeah. saying it was the inspiration. And as I listened to it, it's it's incredibly similar. The melody. Well, you know, it's I mean, I, I agree with Rich to us to a certain extent and actually to a large extent. I do think that there at a certain point is a somewhat limited universe of chord progressions and things sure. like that then ask for permission. I mean, no one's saying you can't use it. You just need to have somebody who is wise and well-versed in this type of thing counsel you to tell you when you need to get permission to steer clear of copyright infringement. Yeah. On to another artist with uh, a little bit of a different suing going on. Taylor Swift was once sued by a theme park. So what she does to get back at them she sues them. This is our Grammy edition, by the way. <laughs> First off, the Grammy. We need a Beyonce story, too. Yes. 
So this one is really interesting and it's pretty complicated. So for purposes of our discussion, I'm going to try to keep it really high level. So as Jill mentioned, at the beginning of February, the theme park Evermore Park, which is based in Utah, sued Taylor Swift. As many of us know, her latest album is Evermore, has met with a lot of critical acclaim. And this theme park sued her, claiming that the name of her album was a trademark infringement of the name of the park and also claimed that there's various merchandising that she's done, some artwork elements that she's incorporated in the advertising of the album that violates Evermore Park's rights. So it's really interesting, and this is probably my favorite part of the story. Within about a day, somebody who works for the park, who is a suspected Swifty, which I know Rich is a huge Swifty, uh, made an anonymous tip. So we've got an anonymous tipster involved who told Taylor Swift's entourage that there were a lot of unauthorized performances of Taylor Swift's songs and frankly, of a lot of other people's songs happening at the park. And apparently for at least a year or two before uh, Taylor Swift got sued, they were onto this fact and had already been starting to send cease and desist letters asking the park to stop um, having folks sing her songs without permission. And so as Evermore Park caught wind that there was a Swifty tipster in the mix, they decided to swiftly, as Joe would like to say, ask for permission. And sure enough, um, this ended up actually resulting in the tit-for-tat lawsuit that, that Taylor Swift's folks ended up filing a few weeks ago. So there's some really interesting tidbits, which we don't really have the time to get into right now, about different allegations and so forth, including the fact that Evermore Park is claiming that Taylor Swift is tarnishing their brand <laughs> with some of the language, the foul language that she uses in her songs and in connection with advertising some of her merchandise. But this is a really fun case. I wish I wish it would go to trial, but I just highly <laughs> doubt that it will because I think that the that the comedic value would be priceless. But unfortunately, I don't think that that's the destiny for this particular case. If I can jump in here, first of all, this is the best thing that's ever happened to the Evermore theme park. Uh, their funnel cake sales are through the roof right now. So <laughs> yeah, the idea that Taylor Swift, I, and by the way, for the record, I did not look up uh, their logos because I don't care. Um, but the idea that Taylor Swift would like steal from this random theme park in Utah and you know, like, oh, this is what I'm going to base everything off of. Uh, that's pretty ridiculous. So uh, this to me is a clear money grab. They're not going after the guy, you know, playing acoustic at Coffee Bean. They're going after her. So uh, it's ridiculous. Throw it out. And this is one time I will say that maybe I'm happy that the powerful person is suing back. Yeah, I would have thought Taylor Swift is someone who doesn't hold grudges, but apparently she can't just shake it off. Uh, <laughs> another another circumstance where there is some bad blood. Rich, oh, wow. Woody Allen and Mia Farrow, they've got a documentary coming out. Joe, that was a blank space I just left between your introduction and my um, discussion. So, uh, um, yeah, so the, the, the documentary, yeah, we're just taking up enough of the um, Swifty references. So uh, the HBO documentary just ended. I think it was a four-parter. about halfway through. Last episode was over the weekend. And from our perspective, we were interested in discussing 
whether Woody Allen can still be prosecuted criminally for these alleged acts that took place in 1992. Uh, the answer is yes. Actually, they took place allegedly in Connecticut uh, at Mir Farrow's house. I don't know, did you guys see the documentary yet, Darius Martin? No. no. Yeah, it's, pretty, it's pretty well done. And again, Dylan Farrow, who is Mia Farrow's daughter, uh, she alleges that when she was seven years old, eight years old, um, she was sexually assaulted by Woody Allen in the upstairs of their home. And that was the result of, uh, or the end result of many years of inappropriate behavior um, by Woody Allen. And she's now grown up, obviously, we're, you know, 30 years later, and she is continuing to allege that this happened. Um, and there are tapes supporting this allegation. And the question is, from a criminal perspective, whether uh, Woody Allen can be, will be prosecuted. Can be, yes, in Connecticut. Uh, there's no statute of limitations for sex crimes against kids. Uh, will he be? Probably not, is the answer, because the initial prosecutor found many years ago that there was probably enough evidence to charge Woody Allen, but he didn't want to put the young Dylan Farrell through that, uh, through that rigor at the time. Um, now, so many years later, there's problems with a prosecution like that. Uh, memories have changed. Uh, witnesses have died. Um, but it's not uncommon, Tina, as we've seen, for victims of sexual assault, especially those who have had it happen to them when they're very young, to wait years, sometimes decades, to come forward. There's also civil liability for Woody Allen. The bottom line is, you know, um, I'm disgusted by what I saw in the documentary. I think there's, uh, I don't think I'll ever be able to watch a Woody Allen movie again. Uh, you hear from his own voice some of what happened, and, and least of all, the issue with, you know, him having sex with Sunni Previn, the daughter of Mia Farrow, who he was living with in the same house when she was in high school. So uh, lots of disturbing elements coming out of this documentary, Tina. Yeah, and you know, it's interesting. I think I'm going to forever keep in my back pocket the quote that the great Gloria Allred gave us when we interviewed her a few weeks ago, which was where there's smoke, there's usually fire. And I guess to your point, Rich, about whether or not he's likely um, to be prosecuted for this, I think if it were ever to happen, um, and if Dylan were ever ready to do it, it would be now. And I think in the context of everything that's happened, um, with Harvey Weinstein and otherwise, I think in this era, I think it's a lot more likely to happen now, not that it's going to get over the finish line, but it's a lot more likely to happen now than it would have been even several years ago. Darius, both of you weigh in. I want to ask you a specific question. Um, you know, when these kind of things are alleged or where they're, when they're even proven, especially with artists, right? By all accounts, Woody Allen has been a transformative director mm -hmm. and doing this for 50 years, some of the most iconic films in history. How do you separate your love for the art of someone like this, if you're a Woody Allen fan, versus these allegations? Is it proper to separate them? Or should you cancel, to use a cliche term, yeah. Woody Allen because of these allegations? Um, Darius, what are your thoughts on that? I'll give my own example. I, nothing about this is surprising or unclear. I was aware of this years ago, and I was a big fan. Um, Sunni was the tipping point for me. I had already heard about Dylan saying all that. I was done with Woody years ago. This is a prime example. R. Kelly is another one. Um, I will separate. Bill Cosby may, is another. I don't see this as a gray. I, it, it, 
I am not going to support him. Anything that brings him money, anything that continues and perpetuates his power. So it's, it's not unclear for me. And I have friends like we've been having this conversation. I'm like, this is almost like you saying, I didn't know this person was this person. Oh, we knew. I, it, it might, we knew we made decisions and now it's unavoidable, but we knew, um, but the movies are so good. So we kept in our mind as we do as humans, why, oh, I can separate. Oh, I can't. I, there's no gray for me. Um, yeah. What what happened to to that woman, him and Sunyi and what he, he did to that family? I was done years ago. I'm just I, I don't want to say I told you so, but I'm kind of waiting for the world to catch up. If he does not go to jail, at the very least, take away his livelihood and take away the power that comes for him with it. Yeah, Martin, that's, that's a great point there. So Martin, what are your perspective as an artist, as a fellow actor? Uh, we've seen, in addition to the R. Kelly's, Chris Brown is a great example, right? Mm -hmm. Chris Brown, uh, in many people's eyes, they will never listen to his music again because of the allegations. On the other hand, Roman Polanski had similar allegations, won an Oscar, not, you know, two decades ago, couldn't come and get it because he, he was yeah, worried about coming back to the U.S. for criminal prosecution. So where do you draw the line on these things? I mean, I would have to agree in the sense that I, to me, it's pretty simple. I mean, once, you know, without a trial in the court of public opinion, if, if I see enough information, I mean, I say, well, that's it. It's a wrap. I mean, I don't, I have no interest. Once you have sex with your wife's teenage daughter. Yeah. It's say, over. No it's, it has to be the line. No, that no needs to be the line. No more hand on our sisters, right? Yeah. yeah. And if you see, you know, you watch all the, uh, the R. Kelly information, the, the documentary and all that. I mean, you see so many real examples and tapes and interviews to me. It's like, right. Why do I want to give more money to propel that? I think, uh, you know, Americans obviously like we love our entertainment and, uh, you could use a company as an example. If the CEO is found out to be a murderer, I guarantee mm -hmm. you, if it's a big enough company, people still go, yeah, but I, I love the product. I mean, I need the product. Yeah. Uh, but this is an artist. This is just like them providing entertainment for you. So to me, it's like, this is, it's very easy. It's now move on. I'm out. I mean, Rich, this is very similar to the conversation that I had with David years ago when all that um, press about Mel Gibson came out and for his crazy anti-Semitic comments. I, I mean, I have a stash of Mel Gibson movies here that I haven't watched since. I mean, he, brilliant actor. Um, and I, I mean, but I just think the guy is despicable. I can't watch a Mel Gibson movie again. Mel Gibson's now making every possible Netflix movie. He's, yes. second, only, he's second only to Nick Cage in his, uh, <laughs> instead of... <laughs> <laughs> Don't uh, get me started on Nick Cage. I love Nick uh, <laughs> Rolling, Joe. <laughs> uh, well, this last topic, uh, it took me a while to read over because I kept thinking about they were talking about Mr. Worldwide, but uh, it's actually just a lawyer <laughs> backlash for using an image of a pit bull for advertising of his firm, Tina. Yeah, I really find this story entertaining. I mean, like I, I just kept saying to myself, big whoop. Um, but apparently in Florida, you can't really use an image of a pit bull when you're a lawyer uh, and you're trying to advertise your services. So this guy, it's very interesting. He used a pit bull on a blog, on a Facebook page, and in a couple of other places to advertise himself as the pit bull lawyer at Taylor Law. Um, there's a logo with a pit bull with a spiked collar, and that's what he used in his advertising. Now, what really left me scratching my head here was that he also used it on a wrap on a boat. 
And while he was willing to remove it from certain places, man, he just would not take it off that wrap. And I just don't get it. But in any event, there's actually a Supreme Court ruling back from 2005, which said that using a pit bull in advertising doesn't really help people in terms of finding the best lawyer for them. Um, and you know what? I just think that this is one of the more ridiculous cases, uh, but it's funny. And apparently in Florida, it's not really funny. They're being serious. So dumb. So it's such an overreach by the uh, by the. Uh, um ethics uh, uh, group in Florida and the Supreme Court. I mean, listen, it's ironic that this is coming from Florida that yeah. preaches, you know, lack of government control. They're not, so let me get this straight. You don't have to wear a mask in Florida. You can spread coronavirus, but you can't use a pit bull as your, as your moniker as a lawyer. Come on. It's so stupid. It's such overreach. Let the guy say, market himself any way he wants. The Supreme Court said, the pit bull reference and image harm both the legal profession and the public's trust and confidence in our system of justice. Give me a break. Maybe you want to hire a guy who's a pit bull. Maybe you think he's not a pit bull. Let the market decide. It's just a ridiculous overreach. And I feel bad for the pit bull. Martin, you are the pit bull of comedy. I know you've used that <laughs> There is actually, by the way, there is actually a pit bull of comedy. It's Bobby right. Slayton. Look him up. Um, Don't go to Florida. This is uh, this is hilarious. And and let's be honest, if you're selecting your legal advice based on a guy's logo or nickname, uh, let's just call you guilty off the bat. So who cares? Like, I mean, if he was a manatee lawyer, he'd be OK. Like, it doesn't matter. Come on. I saw you on our boat, so I'm going to hire you. Darius, last word on the pit bull yeah. lawyer. I live next door to a beautiful pit bull named Chocolate, and I'm offended on her behalf, <laughs> number one. And number two, to Martin's point, if you hire that lawyer, you get what you get, and what you get is what you deserve. Good luck. All right. Exactly <laughs> true. Martin, that's a great point. Martin, as we leave, I got to uh, just do a tribute to our time in Vegas by putting on the, uh, you know. The Vegas hat. I love it. Vegas rich. And also, hang on, I'll show you one more. Good memory, if the camera could see it. Yeah. Oh, the track pants. Oh, yeah. my God. Vegas pants, so. Oh. That's a lot better than what I thought you were going to do, Rich. Oh, well, <laughs> See that the Vegas hat is out, Joe. Well, Rich I travels to Vegas in a collection of uh, fedoras and uh, odd-looking hats. Um, so I don't know what blog he's reading that he thinks like it's the latest fashion, but I I'm too nice a guy to tell him that it's not. So good job, Rich. You look great. Thank you. Yeah, and please please don't ever tell him that he's got to stop wearing the fedoras. Uh, tune in for next week when we introduce our new mascot of the podcast, Petey the Pitbull. Uh, we do. <laughs> Thank you all for joining us, our two guests on Legal Grab Bag, Martin and Darius, and as, along with all our other guests we had earlier today. For Rich Lenkov, Tina Martini, I'm Joe Brand. Thanks for watching and listening to the Legal Faceoff Podcast. It's Christina Martini and Rich Lenkov. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Faceoff. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports, Hollywood, and don't forget the politics. It don't get no better than this. Nah.